Last week, um, Tyler here, and I was in Stratford, and Gordon was in Montague, we began um, a series that will kind of walk us right through till Easter time. It's born out of Acts chapter 6, the back half of that, and then all of 7, a series called Lost the Plot. And it is the culmination of what happens in the life of a human being when we lose track of how God is actually involved in his world, bringing all things to a glorious end. And just by way of quick review, last week, while we kind of dove into this, we were introduced to a man named Stephen. He is a guy facing tremendous pressure because of the religious leaders of the day. They have, in their fullness of their ignorance, completely lost the plot of what God has been doing all the way through human history, and now Stephen is facing tremendous pressure before them. Stephen is the one, just like Jesus before him, is facing opposition from the synagogue. And just so you know, it is literally the same group of men that Jesus would have been standing in front of just a few years earlier. And this same group of men have employed the very same tactic against Stephen that they did towards Jesus. They, in amongst themselves, persuaded people to produce false accusations. The Sanhedrin gets together to hear the very accusations that they themselves have orchestrated to bring to bear over Stephen's life. And once hearing these accusations over Stephen's life that they themselves have orchestrated to now bring judgment on, they turn to Stephen and ask, are these charges true? The text never says it, but it's clear in my mind that Stephen knows what's unfolding before him. He knows the agenda of these particular men. He understands that anything short of him renouncing his faith, anything short of him saying, I'm sorry, I've been wrong about this guy, Jesus. I will stop saying what I've been saying. I'll stop doing what I've been doing. Anything short of that is going to land him in a lot of trouble, perhaps even death. So in this moment where they turn to him and they say, are these charges true? Instead of recanting and kind of walking away from the moment of pressure, he doubles down and he launches into a sermon or a speech where he just laces the Jewish leadership. And he basically says, in your ignorant and stubborn hearts, you have completely missed God's activity in the world. You have completely lost the plot of what God is doing. From now through to Easter, we're going to work through this sermon that Stephen has preached. And we're going to ask the questions, like this morning and next week and every week going forward. How could they have missed God's activity? How could they have missed these moments? And more importantly, have you and I missed? Are we in danger of stepping outside of God's story? So this morning, we want to begin with Acts chapter 7. If you have a Bible or a phone Bible, I would invite you to open it up to Acts 7, verses 1 through 6. This is where we're going to spend our time this morning. You can follow along with me. It's going to be on the screen. There it is there, and you can read kind of with me while I read, depending how good your eyes are. So here we go. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land that I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans, and there he settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. Verse 5, he gave him no inheritance here, not even 
enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and they will be mistreated. So here in this moment, in this first section, verses 2 through 6 of Acts 7, you have Stephen reminding this group of religious leaders, retelling them how it all started. How God comes to Abraham while he's still living in Mesopotamia. Leave your country, leave your people. Go to a land that I will show you. And he begins this process of leaving the Chaldean area and he settles in Haran. God promises him that his descendants after him would possess a land, even though he has no child at all. He is reminding them of this moment. This little shout out that Stephen gives to Abraham in his sermon triggers us or ought to trigger us to go back and investigate the full story of Abraham's life. So in the reading guide that we've made available to you on our website, all series long, these moments in the text that's referencing an Old Testament story, we're going to point you back so that you can dig around through what the scriptures say about this particular moment in God's history, his activity. And in this reading guide, you will find that we've pointed you to Genesis 12 and Genesis 17. These would be the two key significant moments where God comes to Abraham and says some things to him about what's going to unfold in God's story. The first one is Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. We're not going to read the whole, the whole chapter, just the key, the key lines. This is God to Abram. First time, Abram's just minding his business. He's the son of an idol maker, living in this particular country of the Chaldeans. And God comes to him and says this, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. You flip over to Genesis chapter 17. Here's another moment. This is years later. Abraham was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make a covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. And here's the little reference in Stephen's sermon. This is in the verse 5 and 6. For 400 years, talking about the same group of people that will follow Abraham after the fact. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. This is speaking to an Israel. Abraham's descendants are now stuck in Egypt for generation upon generation upon generation, where they are, in fact, enslaved by the Egyptians. Stephen, in his sermon, takes the Sanhedrin way back to a story that they all know. These are not foreign details to them. They're quite aware of their own history about what God did or how he said it and what Abraham's response was, etc., etc., but what they are forgetting, and it's obvious here in this moment, that woven into this story is how God is going to bring his own son, the Messiah, into the world to begin something brand new and marvelous and wonderful that will restore God's good and broken creation. And now here in this moment, which is what Stephen's on trial for, they have, they've completely missed it. I want to take a subtle shift from this moment on and go back to Abraham for a moment and highlight some things that will frame a question that is difficult for you and I to answer this morning. But it's still one that we should ask. When one dives into the details around Abraham's life, these are some of the things that you'll discover. Number one, Abraham was somewhere between 75 and 80 years old when God first comes to him and says, 
what he says about that you're going to be a great nation. 75 to 80 years old. You're well into life in this moment. Like we're like on cruise control. Freedom 55 has kicked in. We are ready to settle down, so to speak. But here, his life begins to really ramp up. You're going to be a great nation. Abraham responds and he begins to move. And while moving, there is no question in my mind that he is wondering about this phrase of how he is going to be a great nation and I don't have any children of my own to kind of pass on the story or to continue on the process of becoming a great nation. Sixteen years later, from when God says to him, move, you're going to be a great nation. God comes to him again and says, now you're going to have a son. 16 years later, after the fact. I don't know about you, but if God speaks to me, and the next time he speaks is 16 years later, that's a dry stretch, so to speak. That's a difficult window to maintain while we're waiting to see and hear from God as it relates to what he has in store for us, connected to a promise that he's laid down over my life. God tells him he's going to have a son. Four years later, Abraham finally sees the son. His name is Isaac. And Abraham dies at around 175 years old. And the promise that God has given to him is still hundreds of years out in front of him. He never sees it. To say this another way, Abraham's faith in God moves him forward, but it grounds him every day of his life. He's not going to see what God has said about his life, but it still moves him forward. So my question to you is this, how is your long game as it relates to your faith in God? How is your long game? If there is a way for you and I to get lost in the plot, it's when we try to fast food God's work and promises in our lives. It's when we try to hurry things up For example, if if God said something to you today or tomorrow about something in your life, we're getting impatient by Thursday. Like, (laughs) let's let's move this along. Like, I've got things to do. I've got people to see. I would really love to see the fruit of this word come to fruition now. How's your long game as it relates to faith? Next week, we see what happens in Abraham's life when we try to fast food these words where Abram's like, well, maybe God means I sleep with my servant girl, Hagar. Maybe that's how this promise is going to come to fruition. Again, the question to you and I is, how is our long game as it relates to your faith in God? What is the grounding picture that holds you in the day-to-day through the course of time? To help us answer this question this morning, I want to frame up Abraham's interaction with God, and you should be able to see significant parallels between his life and your life, my life here this morning. God comes to Abraham, and he tells him, I want you to move. You're going to have a son, and the descendants from your family are going to be so numerous that it's going to rival the amount of sand on the seashore. This is the nation that's coming through you, Abraham. There's going to be so many people in your family tree that it's going to be all what you'd see at Brackley Beach, just all those pieces of sand, that's your descendants from one person who has no son. This word that he's been given from God, it really shapes everything about his life. He begins the process of moving. 
And in the middle of all his ups and downs through the course of his life, because life is hard, this is what keeps him going all the way along. God comes to us in the work and person of Jesus Christ. And he says a similar word that's not too dissimilar from what Abraham has been told either. God tells us through Jesus, I am making all things new again. There is a land coming out in front of you. New heavens and new earth. This word, this promise, similar to Abraham, this ought to be what shapes everything about our life. Yes, there's going to be ups and downs of everyday life because life is very hard and it's very challenging. But this picture that God has given us through his own son, this ought to shape our life in every single way, all the way to the end. And to be clear with you, when we look at Stephen, who's under the microscope, who's facing tremendous pressure in the moment from the synagogue leaders from the Sanhedrin, this is what's grounding him. It's the picture of God's promise that's out in front of him that holds him in the moment. And like, well, I know what's coming. You have no hold over my life. Not even death itself is going to scare me away from your threats and what you're saying to me because I understand that God has said something about his world that I am going to participate in in one way or another and it's going to hold him all the way through this moment. Church family, you and I need to hear this and hear this well. You, me, we will get lost in the plot if you do not let Jesus, his word about all things new, hold you every single day of your life. We cannot stop trusting Jesus. We cannot stop putting his words into practice. We cannot stop trusting God in his world as he is still at work in it all And it's all linked to stuff that's out in front of us. It's about a long game. It's about all things new again. And like Abraham, I suspect that the vast majority of us in this room, we will never actually see, we will never be living when this moment happens at the day of Christ Jesus. I can't even begin to count the number of people who, through the course of my life, stopped trusting, stopped following, Because they did not have an all-things-new perspective that shaped their worldview of everyday life. Life is hard. Everyone in this room knows this. Life can be very, very long. And without a God-shaped, long-range view of this world, there is virtually no chance of you running strong through the finish line. Give you some examples of what I mean. What, What holds you when you discover the news that your child is going to die with a disease or a rare something that's happened? What holds you in that moment? What happens if it's your spouse and your marriage is headed towards the rocks and there's just been trauma and violence and struggle all the way through it? What holds you in your family relationships when everything seems to be spinning out of control And yet this isn't what you want at all and you have no ability to stop it from happening. What happens when every step of your life it feels like you're being knocked down in one way or another? And we could list a million and one scenarios of how life is just hard. Life is difficult because of the fracturing of sin in the world, because of the curse, because of death. It is always at work against us. When when the scriptures talk about how by the the sweat of your brow and the thorns and thistles that choke us out, 
we start with great optimism and excitement, and we're going to be firemen and nurses and teachers and all this stuff when we're kids, and then we're 30 or 60, we're like, bah, whatever. <laughs> it kind of chokes us out as we work through life. What is going to hold you all the way to the end? And listen, there's a reason why Jesus in Matthew 24 says, the one who stands firm to the end, they are the ones who are saved. In Matthew 10, just for those of you who are like, well, wait a minute, that's just one verse. All right, Matthew 10. The one who endures all the way to the end will be saved. James 1, the one who remains steadfast under trial. And when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of life. Hebrews 3, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm all the way to the end. And there are dozens of verses that basically say, hold fast, long suffer, all the way to the end. And there's got to be something that holds you in how you view life as it's difficult, filled with all kinds of valleys. Yes and amen to mountaintops. But generally speaking, we, we don't need a lot of help in the mountaintops. It's in the moments of struggle that if you do not have a all things new again perspective, it's going to be very difficult for you to navigate life and life well. It is no secret that Abraham was old. But in many ways, he is way ahead of his time. Long before it's ever penned, he understood this verse that Paul writes in Philippians 1, where he says, He who began, and I want you to not think of this verse as the poster or the verse that's on your coffee cup. you got to get outside of how small you are as a person and put it in the grand scheme of what God is doing. He who began a good work in you. I was nine. Some of you, you're also nine. Some of you are seven. Some of you are 30. We'll carry it on to the day of completion, the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, I am not going to see the fullness of what God started in me in my life. It's only going to be realized at the day of Christ Jesus. It's not going to happen when I'm 57. It's not going to happen when I'm 83. There's going to be other things that have to be formed and shaped in my life. What Christ started in me is going to come to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. How do I know this? Because in Jesus' resurrection... This firstborn of the dead, the first thing, this first new reality that God has done in His own Son, this is the promise about all things new again, and I can look back at what He did in His Son, He's going to do in my life and in the cosmos around me. It's not going to happen, similar to Abraham, in my lifetime. It's only going to be happening in its fullness on the day of Christ Jesus, if we are not careful without a long view of God's promise, you and I will get lost in the plot because life is very, very hard. The one who has invited us in, well, he will finish what he has started. Abraham knew this and it was a credit to him righteousness. Stephen knew this and it holds him fast in the face of death. It's my prayer for you that you would ground yourself in this long view of God's activity in the world. It's about all things new again. And if we don't ground ourselves in this, you and I will get lost in the plot. 
I'm going to invite Dana and team. They're going to lead us in some different, different songs after this. And while they do, I, I want to, this is like as pastoral as I, as I get with you. I, I want to share with you a very real prayer that I have over all of your lives. Regardless of what's unfolding in your life, there are times where we'll gather in my office or you'll come to our house. There's times where it's at Tim Hortons or it's just an email exchange. And it's, it's always linked to something has happened. I don't know what this means for me right now. Would you at least pray for me? And, and here is like, I'm inviting you to make what I pray for you, your own prayer in your life. It's an incredible spiritual discipline to build into your life. One, when the call comes and you're in danger of getting lost in the plot, you're in danger of not seeing or forgetting what's coming out in front of you, this simple prayer of, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and give praise and thanksgiving for what the news is. It's bizarre, I know, particularly in the face of difficulty. But this is the day that the Lord has made. And second, woven into that is, dear Heavenly Father, and whether this is in my car as I leave your home, or in my office, or at Tim Hortons, the second prayer is, give them daily bread that they need to get through this season, this moment in their life. You are the only one who has what they need to deal with the internal struggle that they're struggling through. You're the only one who has what they need to find the confidence and courage to engage in difficult reconstruction of their life. You're the only one who has what they need to deal with the anxiety that they're working through, the depression that they're struggling through, the relationships that are fracturing, the job loss, the resources. You're the only one who has this. Give them this day their daily bread because they need bread. This is the day the Lord has made. Give them daily bread. And this is the third one. That they would never, ever forget that all things are going to be new again. So as your body fails, it's just for a season. It's just for a season. All things new again. So as your hips give way, your shoulders fail, your mind All things new again. As relationships fall apart, and, and ironically, you're both Christians and you still can't make it work, all things new again. That as you struggle through, this is the day the Lord has made. Give them daily bread. And this, this other third pin, all things new again, it holds us. It helps shape the long view of life. Because the one who began a work is going to be faithful to finish it. And it holds us. It held Stephen. It's the only way we hold up under pressure like that. It's the only way you're going to make it through life, which is filled with valleys that are deep and wide and dark and lonely. And it's these promises of God that hold us all things new again. Let's pray together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, when we ground ourselves as Abraham, as millions of people before us,
have this grand view that you're going to do something in your world that you began the day that Jesus rose from the dead. It's beautiful. It holds us. It helps us process the struggle that we're in. It helps us process the reality that maybe I'm never going to see it. But there's going to be a day coming where all things will be made new again. And unlike Abraham, he had, he had nothing. Just a voice from heaven. We have so much more than him. We have your life and your son. We have a cross. We have an empty tomb. We have the scriptures. We have the testimony of thousands of people through the, top, through the ages who grounded their life of faith in you, you alone, who understood that you are doing something significant and that you are faithful all the way to the end. And I want to run my life in such a way that it's just framed through this space of this is the day that the Lord has made. And on this particular day, I need some daily bread. And a struggle is carried by this incredible promise of all things new again. In your name we pray. Amen.